Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Julie, and I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the one who caught the fish. I'm very proud of this fact. Um, I, yeah, I, when Joel was talking about it, Allie was like, you're from Wisconsin, and you've never caught a fish before? It's true. It's not a fishing family. Uh, but now that I'm a Minnesotan, I've officially caught a fish. I think that makes me, it gives me like more Minnesota points in the category. Uh, but hey, we are wrapping up our series on the book of Ruth today. This is like the final ending of the story. It's the, um, all of the anticipation and suspense that has been building throughout this, which I know it's hard when you're getting it week to week, but uh, it's like old TV shows where you actually had to watch every week to find out what happens. Uh, but there's a lot of suspense for this ending, and I am not great with suspense. I tend to like look up spoilers for things if it gets too intense. Uh, I like to binge read books because I don't like to wait to find out what the ending's gonna be. Uh, and I used to feel like, eh, maybe there's something wrong with that. But actually they've done studies that show like your brain chemistry when you're reading a story or when you're watching a story, uh, that like as the tension and the stress builds, the cortisol, Cortisol, that's the stress hormone, right? That or the stress thing in your body. Clearly not a doctor either, not a business person, not a doctor. Uh, but that stress builds as you tell the story. And then when you get the ending, the final conclusion, you actually get like a rush of dopamine, which is the like happy feeling uh, that you get. So there's actual brain chemistry to why we like story and why we want to get to the ending and we want to have that tension resolve as we're doing it. And so as I started planning out the sermon series, uh, I decided to leave the ending uh, as a surprise because there's a little bit of a surprise at this ending. And I know many of you have probably read the book of Ruth, so it's not as much of a surprise for you. But if you haven't, it was really hard for me not to spoil it. And I was a little afraid Joel was gonna say something the last time he was preaching, but he didn't, so I'm proud of him. He did not spoil the ending. And now we are finally getting to it. So if you are just joining us or if you missed some of the sermons because you were traveling over the summer, I'll do a little bit of a recap so we can kind of feel that tension again and then we will dive right into the resolution of the story. So uh, we started the book out with the character of Naomi and she had to move to another country called Moab, which was like kind of frowned upon by the country she was from because there was a famine in her town. And then while she's there, her husband dies, which is the first part of this tragic story for her and then while they're living there her two sons marry Moabite women and so she's you know she's excited about the weddings and the uh, the p prospect for children but then 10 years go by and even though they're trying to have children neither of her daughter-in-laws can bear children and I said this the first week but really the story according to Israelite standards should have ended there because they did not really, everything was told from a male perspective and it was all about the male uh, line continuing. That was part of their culture. And I'm not saying the Bible condones this, I think it actually subverts it in the way that it tells the story. But we have to remember that that's the culture that they were living in. So the story should end there, but it doesn't. And Naomi decides to go home and Ruth, one of her daughter-in-laws, decides to go with her. Even though she knows that if she does this, she's going to be an outcast in Israel. Uh, she is going to be a foreigner. She's a widow. She's barren, which brought a lot of shame on women in that time. It would have just been a very dangerous thing for her to do. And yet she decides to follow God and to care for Naomi and to continue on in that. And she follows Naomi back to Bethlehem. 
And as soon as they get there, she jumps in and is like, I'm going to find us some food. So she goes on what's like the, their equivalent of the welfare system. And she goes and gleans in fields and picks up grain. And even though this was really dangerous for women, there's a lot of um, potential for exploitation and abuse, she ends up, coincidentally, in a field owned by a guy named Boaz, and he treats her with so much dignity. And the book really shows that Boaz was a man of character in the way that he treats her, because he could have just said, yeah, get out of my field. I'm not going to let you glean here, and I'm especially not going to let you glean as much as you're asking to glean. And yet he doesn't. So we get a little bit of conflict resolution there. And then immediately, uh, as it goes on, Naomi realizes there's still future danger. Even though this present conflict is resolved, there's still a future uh, issue of who's going to protect them. Because again, in that society, they needed men uh, to just be able to do the things that they needed for, to survive. That's just how the culture was. And so they hatched, Naomi hatches this plan to hopefully get Ruth married, specifically to Boaz, because he's shown to be a good guy thus far. And so uh, as, again, you get this another conflict, and Ruth goes, and she actually shockingly proposes to Boaz, basically, and says, hey, I want you to marry me. Uh, and Boaz agrees. Again, another shocking resolution to this conflict and then immediately we get another conflict in that it turns out there's someone else who is first in line to be able to marry Ruth and to buy back the land uh, from Naomi. And so the last time we were in Ruth, we got uh, Joel was telling us all about the legal proceedings that happened between Boaz and this other guy who could potentially buy the land and marry Ruth. And we find out that Boaz can marry him. So again, we just got this roller coaster of tension, right? Like honestly, I was thinking this would make a great mini-series on TV because there's so much uh, going on and so much tension throughout the whole thing that gets resolved but doesn't really get resolved and you never know how's it going to end. And so through it all we get these hints that uh, God seems to be working behind the scenes, right? We don't get a lot of uh, God specifically being named as doing things in the book of Ruth, but we get these hints and it, it kind of makes us ask the question, not only will the conflict of Naomi and Ruth be resolved, will they have uh, an heir to kind of continue on their line, but also makes us ask the question, what kind of God are we following, right? Like if they're going through all this tragedy and all this hardship, where is God throughout it all? And what's he doing? What's he gonna, how's he going to respond? So, are you ready for the ending? <laughs> you guys, yes. Okay, I got someone to answer me. Uh, we're going to see what happens. We're going to see the resolution of uh, both Naomi and Ruth's conflict, but also our conflict of asking the question of what kind of God do we follow? All right. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. This is a miracle, you guys. We've had 10 years of Ruth not being able to bear children, and then immediately she's able to. God enables, we actually get God in the story, enables her to conceive and have a son. And the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. So we get our happy ending, right? This is the ending that we've been waiting for. We have a miracle in that Ruth is able to conceive and has a son. 
Uh, and this is what they were hoping, that their family line would be able to continue. God rescues Ruth from her shame uh, and rescues Naomi's family line from extinction. All of our tension resolved right away. It's a little, almost a little anticlimactic, but there's more, so we're going to keep going. Um, but we've got to talk through a little bit of what's happening here. So you get these women, uh, and you're kind of like, who are these people? Where did they come from? Uh, but, and the best comparison I can kind of think of is like a baby shower, except it's happening after the baby is born, and there's not any of the weird party games where like they smear candy bars and diapers and you have to smell them and guess which one it is. If anyone's ever had to play that one. Uh, I've been to a lot of baby showers. Anyways, there's not these things, but it's kind of like that, right? These women are gathering around to welcome this baby into the world and um, to be excited for Naomi and for Ruth. And so, again, last time when Joel was preaching, uh, we talked about how there, there were these men, these elders of the town, and they kind of spoke a blessing or maybe even a prophecy for Boaz, saying, may he be uh, known through all of Bethlehem, which was kind of the, the town that they were living in. So here now we get the women who are kind of offering as the other perspective the, the same thing, these women of the town offering a blessing or maybe a prophecy, as we'll see. So they say, praise be to God, uh, which is a little bit of a change for this book already, right? Again, they're acknowledging that God is the one acting in these situations. Because mostly so far we've seen it from the character's perspective, and now we're getting this outside breaking in of God being the one who's doing something. And uh, Robert Hubbard, one of the guys that I read on this, uh, he notices this too, and he says, the women gave Yahweh, or God, total credit for everything that had happened. In so doing, they probably voiced the author's view, the narrator of the story, that Yahweh alone had brought these events about. Though he reported mainly human acts, he viewed them all as Yahweh's acts as well. And this is one of the interesting things that's that has really stood out to me in the book of Ruth as we've been working through it. This connection between our work and what we do in the world and God's work and how he works in the world as well. Because this book really kind of combines them in a way that I don't tend to do. And I'm not sure if that's just me or if that's kind of our culture, but I don't always think about, you know, everything happening as being like, oh, God's working behind the scenes. And I think as we reflect on that uh, as we kind of wrap up Ruth, it should give us some freedom. I think a lot of times we want to like hear directly from God, like, what should I do in this situation? Tell me, you know, what job I should take. Tell me how I should choose, you know, anything from my friends to which church I go to, to like where I go out to eat, right? Sometimes we get so paralyzed because we want to know and we want to do it right. And that's a good desire for us to have, to like, we want to please God, we want to follow him and be obedient. But I hope that reading through the story and kind of seeing the interplay between our work in the world and God's work and how he works through us gives you some freedom to not feel so uh, worried about every decision that you make. Because the way that the characters work in this story is they're just following God to the best that they can, right? They're just doing their best and trying to love God and love other people. And then through that, we see that now the narrator kind of says that's God's work in the world, right? He's working through them. We don't necessarily get in the story of Ruth an audible voice of God. Like, you know, we, I don't know, maybe it happened, but we don't hear from Naomi that like, hey, I had this dream and now I have this plan, right? I got this dream and vision from God and now I'm going to tell you to go do this thing. We just see her thinking through 
what's going to be best for these people? How can we best follow God and love others? And her way of loving Ruth is by saying, hey, I have this plan. Let's do it. Even though it's kind of risky, right? I just talked about, like, I'm not sure I would recommend everybody doing this plan. But she's doing the best that she can, and God works through that. God works through ordinary people, and I think we, that should give us freedom. That should give us uh, a desire to go out and do the things that we feel like make sense with what we know about who God is and how to best follow him and not feel so um, burdened by wondering if we're making the right decision or the wrong decision. Okay, so the women go on to praise God. Yep, we've got it here. Uh, that he's not left Naomi without a guardian redeemer. And if you've been reading along with us so far, Boaz is the one who has had this title, right? This title of guardian redeemer. He's the one who's buying back the land for the family. Uh, It's kind of like a legal obligation. But if you read this, right, they say he, uh, or that God has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous. And it's a little ambiguous of like, who is she talking about? Is she talking about Boaz? But if you look at the passage, she's actually talking about the baby, Here now the baby has been given this title of guardian redeemer. And it seems that the the women are applying it because they say that this baby will renew her spirits, renew Naomi's spirits. And that literally like translates to it will revive her. It will bring her life uh, in her old age. And I think he's this guardian redeemer because he will grow up to become the person who will provide for and protect Ruth and Naomi. And then they bless and prophesy about this baby that he will become famous throughout all of Israel. Now, that's a big thing to put on a little baby, right? Like, that's a big weight to say, your baby is going to grow up and become this famous person throughout all of the country. And as I said before, the men said that about Boaz, but they just said of of Bethlehem, of the city that they lived in, right? So, like, that'd be like... Boaz will be famous throughout the Twin Cities, but this baby, he's going to be famous throughout the whole country, all of the United States of America. That's kind of the the parallel here. It's a pretty big thing. Let's, Let's keep that in mind as we come back to it. And then they also give Ruth a huge compliment, too. They say that she is better than seven sons. Uh, and in that culture, in that time period, seven sons was like the ideal family, <laughs> right? Like, I don't know what the ideal family is now. I think it's like two and a half kids, right, is what they say. Like, the average family has 2.5 kids. I think that's just an average. But uh, this was like the ideal. If you could have the perfect family, it would be seven sons. Because, again, in that culture, men were the ones who provided and cared for and uh, kind of had all of the roles in the family. And so <laughs> these women, they go on to say that, wi- that Ruth is one Ruth, single Ruth, is better than seven sons. The ideal, the perfect family, seven guys. And that would have honestly probably been pretty controversial for, her to, for them to say that in this time. And it's a huge compliment to Ruth. I tried to, I tried to think of like a comparison, and it would maybe be like saying like one um, entry-level worker is better than seven executives or something like that, right? Like they're saying that one person who's way lower on the totem pole is actually worth so much more than the people who are are maybe higher up in the culture. And I wanna take a minute to talk about what it is that they're praising Ruth for. Because it's not just that she had a son, which again was still pretty miraculous that she had a son after being barren for all these years. But they're not praising her and saying she's better than seven sons because of that. They're talking about 
this thing that Ruth has continued to do over and over throughout the story, and that's to practice hesed, or that sacrificial love that we've been talking about. So remember, hesed kind of encompasses all these ideas of love, faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty. Uh, It's the way that someone goes above and beyond what they are expected or required to do. And Ruth has showed this time and time again, right? In the story, she went above and beyond when she decided to follow Naomi into Bethlehem. She could have stayed in Moab, and she probably would have had a, you know, her family was there. She could have gone back to her family. She probably would have had more chances to get married in Moab than in Bethlehem as a foreigner. So she could have stayed and lived that, you know, quote-unquote good life. But she chose to make that sacrifice to follow Naomi and to care for her uh, through that. And then over and over again through the story, right, she immediately chooses to go and glean and to provide for the family. Uh, And she chooses even to take that extra step to propose to Boaz, even when Naomi tells her to just just wait and Boaz will do the rest. But Ruth says, no, I want to care for for Naomi and for her well-being, and so I'm going to make sacrifices for her. So the women and the people of the town see this, and they praise her for that. And they praise her for the incredible love and self-sacrifice that she has shown. And as we've talked about before, this love really points forward to Christ, which we're going to get to. Uh, But she truly shows the love of God through her actions. Okay, and then we'll kind of wrap this up a little bit in terms of the scene of what's happening. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son and they named him Obed. So I kind of picture this again, like if this was a miniseries or a movie or something, it's like the scene where they just kind of zoom in on her holding the baby, and it's this like beautiful, happy ending, right? All of the conflicts have been resolved. Naomi talks about how she came home empty and she was bitter, and now her hands are literally full. She is full. Uh, God has provided for her. Their family line will continue on. They don't have to worry about being provided for. All of this conflict has been resolved. And then there's still this like thing that they kind of left hanging out there of this baby is going to be famous in all of Israel. It's kind of like this just dangling little thing left in the end of the story. And so we're wondering, what, what is that, right? If we're reading a story intelligently, if we're paying attention, we should be asking ourselves, who does this baby grow up to be? Or how does that end up taking place? Because so far we've seen that God is faithful to follow through on things. And so if this is something that, you know, is being prophesied, how is that, what's going to happen? And we actually get to find out. This is like, this is good for me and my like not wanting to, or wanting to spoil endings for myself because I don't like to wait. I don't want to, I want to know what's going to happen. So we get this little add-on, uh, kind of like an epilogue of sorts, kind of just this like, oh, and by the way, and it was likely written, I don't know, it's possible that it was written after the Book of Ruth was written and kind of added on to it to, to kind of give people that ending of like, what did happen to this baby? What happened from here? Uh, or it's possible that Ruth was just written a little bit later. But we do get the ending in that it says, he, this baby, was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, if you are an Israelite, this would have been a really big deal, right? This would pop right off the page. And even if you're a Christian who's well-versed in your Old Testament, right, this should be setting off bells of like, wait a minute, David is kind of a big deal. What's going to happen here? So we get a a little bit of a a genealogy, and it says, This, then, is the the family line of Perez. 
Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. So a little bit of a refresher on David. David is like the guy of Israel. He's the king. Like when you think about Israel, you think about King David. Uh, and again, remembering that the time of Ruth, right, in the beginning it said this was all taking place in the time of the judges when Israel didn't have kings. They had these judges who kind of acted in place of it. And if you read the book of Judges, it's not good. It does not go well for them, right? And I was, we talked about how in Judges the thing they said was like, Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Everybody just, you know, did whatever they wanted. There was no regard for anybody else. Uh, and then we get these kings who kind of come in. And David is the first king that really is like a good king. He's described as a man after God's own heart. He's actually the, the second character in all of scripture to have the most space dedicated to him, right? Like Jesus has the most. And then after that, it's David. He's got the most real estate in the Bible. Um, so he's a really big deal in Israel. So that prophecy comes through, right? This baby becomes famous in all of Israel through David. God really goes above and beyond in providing for Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, so much so that they become a part of this incredible history and story of God's people. And also this genealogy gives us a little bit of insight into maybe what some of what the author of Ruth was trying to accomplish through this book. Um, Daniel Black, another commentator, points out that linear genealogies uh, that trace the line of descent from the first name entered to the last name are usually intended to legitimate, that is, to establish the claims of the last person named to fulfill an official function. So in some ways, this is like a way to show uh, the, the lineage of David and to kind of testify like, yeah, he has the right to be king. Um, he comes from this line and he, you know, kind of legitimates his claim to the throne. But here's the even crazier part. If we fast forward through scripture, the genealogy doesn't end there. It's like another epilogue to the story, if you keep reading. Um, I was thinking about the Marvel movies, how they have the like, the movie ends, and then you have some credits, and then you have another scene, and then you have all the credits that go on for a really long time. And then there's another secret scene that I never really knew about until I married Joel, because he's a very big Marvel fan, as you all know. Uh, so this is like the, the post-post-credit scene. This is like the ending where you get to see kind of what comes next. Uh, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read show these to you. They're really small on the screen. Sorry about that. But I wanted to get them all up there. So if you start in Matthew 1, uh, there's 17 verses. I'm not going to read them all because it's long and you really don't want to hear me mispronounce all of these names. Uh, but it starts even before Ruth. It starts at the beginning of time. Uh, it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So it starts with Abraham. And then about verse 3, if you can read it on the screen, that's where you're no, you'll notice our characters, right? These are people who you should be like, hey, I know them. This is what we just read. And then it continues on uh, through David. David was the last one on there. And then it continues on through the exile, which is something that happened to God's people in their history. And then it goes on even further, all the way through verse 17, where it says, uh, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. 
Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, from the beginning to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and then 14 from the exile to the Messiah, to Jesus. So it turns out that not only are Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi a part of the line of the great king of Israel, King of David, King David, but the king of all of Israel, the true king of Israel, the Messiah, Jesus. It's just like, the, it gives me chills of like, this whole story is pointing forward to this, right? They're a part of this. The humble little story that we read of this poor, widowed, barren, refugee girl and her mother who have gone through serious tragedy and trauma, their story is a part of Jesus' story. It's the central character of the Bible and of our faith. Talk about being famous in all of Israel, right? <laughs> this is the ultimate uh, epitome of fame. But I really want us to think about this. This little baby Obed, who brought the resolution of the conflict in our story of Ruth and revived the spirits of uh, our character Naomi, he pointed ahead to another baby born 28 generations later who would literally give life to everybody. He would revive the spirits of anyone who called him Savior and Lord. He resolves the biggest conflict of history, the biggest conflict of the entire world, the conflict between humankind and our creator, God. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus shows us the greatest form of hesed, of sacrificial love, in becoming human and in dying as a criminal for us and redeeming all of humanity. But Ruth and Boaz didn't know any of this. They, stood, like, they died before any of this happened. They didn't know. They didn't have this. They had this prophecy that their kid would be famous in all of Israel. But honestly, if someone said that to me at a baby shower, I'd probably be like, yeah, cool. <laughs> okay, I don't know how much you've had, uh, how many mimosas you've had this morning, but uh, thanks. So I don't even, you know, we don't even know what they thought of this or what it would have worked out to be. And yet, this is the ultimate story that they're a part of. They were just living their ordinary lives, trusting God in the best way they could, practicing that type of self-sacrificial love in their community with their people. And yet through all of that, without them knowing, God was faithfully working through all their suffering, through all their confusion, through all the hard decisions that they had to make. So as we move into a time of application and kind of wrapping up this whole book of uh, Ruth, the first point of, the, of application I want to make, it still just honestly amazes me as we read this book. It's simple, and yet it, the story illustrates it so well. It's just that God is faithful. He's faithful through suffering. He's faithful through doubt. He's faithful over time, over long, long periods of time, after any of us will be long gone. He's faithful through ordinary people. The characters in Ruth dealt with serious suffering and trauma. Naomi openly expressed her confusion and doubt about what God was doing in her life. But God proved himself to be faithful over time. Their problems didn't resolve instantly, but God continued to show his love, oftentimes through regular, ordinary people, just trying to follow God the best they could. And look, Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi didn't always get to see what God was doing, right? I'm sure that uh, if they got to see all of that, they would have felt very differently about the circumstances that they were in. They didn't get to see the whole picture. And I think that's important for us to remember because we like to see the whole picture, right? We want to know when something's hard in our lives or when we're going through something that doesn't make sense, we want to know why. <laughs> why is this happening? What's going to come out of this? 
And people say things like, well, everything happens for a reason, or look on the bright side, look at the silver lining. And we want to know those things. We want to know what's the reason behind the suffering that I'm dealing with right now. What's the silver lining? What's going to make this all worth it? And we don't always get to see that. Oftentimes we don't. You know, those glimpses when we do, it's like so sweet. And those are the stories and the memories that we hang on to. But for the vast majority of the time, we don't know. We don't get to see the long-term work of God. But we do get stories like this. We do get the Bible, and we do get to see God's faithfulness play out over time. And I know that that's difficult for us, and seems to be particularly difficult for us now, right? Like, I get annoyed when people are like, oh, yeah, you millennials, you can't wait for anything. Uh, you know, like, oh, everybody just wants everything to happen immediately. And I'm like, okay, we're not all like that. And then I find myself being exactly like that, right? Like, when something isn't making sense or I'm waiting for something to happen and it's not happening, I'm like, it's been, like, a week. What's going to happen? Where is God in this? And truly, like, a week is not that long of a time, right? We've seen God be faithful over generations and generations. Uh, but it's hard for us. It's hard to live in that. I've been talking a lot about, like, TV and movies and kind of how we, how we view stories right now. And I was reading this article recently where a guy who's been writing for TV for a long time was talking about the difference in writing for TV now than it was, like, even 10 years ago before streaming, like, really took off. He was talking about how, you know, you used to have to wait every week. So you do a lot of, like, cliffhanger endings where something really dramatic happens, and then it's like, well, now you're going to have to tune in next Sunday at 7 so that you can find out what happens. But he was talking about how that doesn't really, you just like don't really do that anymore in TV because people are just going to, you know, click the next button on Netflix and it's just going to keep going. So it's not like there's this, you know, huge cliffhanger and then it, you know, you have to wait and build the suspensions. They just kind of, they tell their stories differently. So even as a culture, we are experiencing stories in a more uh, like rapid way. We're getting conclusions more quickly. And I think that influences how we view our own story and how we view the story of God. And I think the truth is, is that we do need to be patient. We do need to wait and see. And we won't always get to know the exact ending of, of why something happened to us or why we're dealing with it. So I want us to keep that in mind as we're work, waiting for things, right? We need to keep it in mind when we're waiting to build community or build the relationships, right? I mean, sometimes it's like, hey, we've been doing this church thing now uh, for like seven months. It feels like that's a really long time. And yet, relationships are slow. They take time to build and invest in. If you think about the really deep friendships that you have in your life, it probably took place over time. And it probably wasn't, I mean, it, maybe every once in a while you get this, but it probably wasn't like I met them and immediately I told them my entire life story and I knew everything about them and we were super tight and it was really easy to communicate. It, it takes time, but we forget that. Once we're on the other side of it, we forget it. And so if you're waiting for that, if you're waiting for jobs, if you're trying to figure out, like, I just don't know if this is the best fit, or you're applying for jobs and you're not hearing anything back, right? Maybe patience as God is faithful over time. Or maybe you're in a stage of life right now where you have kids and it feels like, are we ever going to sleep again? <laughs> time will go on and that will change, right? Like, that's one that we can actually see. You can talk to people who have older kids and it's like, oh yeah, that will change at some point. But we don't like to wait. But I think as we wait, if we reflect on the fact that God is faithful, it will help us. It will help give us endurance as we wait. 
And another thing is just to remember the stories, right? Remember these stories in scripture. Remember the story of Ruth. Remember the story that God's telling through all of time with Jesus. Uh, even hear the stories of people around you, right? Last week was so fun and encouraging to hear the people who got baptized share their like little short versions of their stories because it's so clear how God's working. You know, some of, lots of you were talking about like, yeah, my parents, you know, brought me to church or baptized me as a kid, but it didn't mean anything to me then. But you see how God continued to work through that and was faithful to them over time and through many probably difficult situations, but ultimately he's always working uh, to bring glory to himself and also for the good of his people. So if you're feeling stuck and if you're like, yeah, okay, I get that, but like I'm not really struggling with that right now. I'm not really in a hard season. That's great. I'm really happy that, that you're not feeling that uh, tension right now, but I guarantee someone else sitting next to you probably is because that's just the reality of our world. We live in a broken world and we're gonna continue to have struggles and difficulties and the people around us are gonna have those difficulties. So as we wrap up this series and as we think about the fact that God is faithful and what that means both for us personally, but also what that means uh, and how we can encourage one another as a community because it's gonna happen, right? Everybody's gonna go through hard things and if we can as a church remember these stories and hold on to them as we face these struggles every time it will be easier and easier to hold on to that reminder that God is faithful. Okay, so the other thing that we want to talk about, the other application point, uh, kind of goes along with this, but it's that we're a part of the legacy, right? I read that genealogy, and it ended with Jesus, and when we're united with Christ, then that makes us a part of the story, right? We talked a few weeks ago about how we're a part of the family of God, so we're a part of this legacy. As soon as you believe in Christ and his life, death, and resurrection, and like Ruth did, turn from your old way of life to follow God and accept him as your Savior and Lord, you become a part of the family of God. You can do it right now, even if this is something that you've been thinking about or that you haven't uh, yet done. This, this is something that you can do. You can make that decision. And a part of the legacy that we're a part of that, this, uh, that has been told throughout this story is that God loves all people. In the kingdom of God, it doesn't matter if you're male or female, black or white, Asian, Hispanic, doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. God shows his sacrificial, faithful, loyal love to you through Jesus Christ. And I, like I said, by all cultural standards, this book of Ruth probably shouldn't even have been written. It's a story that shouldn't have gotten told. Ruth was a foreigner, a barren widow in a patriarchal society where women didn't have many rights. She was on poor and on welfare. And yet God showed his care and love to her through Boaz. So no matter what you're dealing with, God's love is available to you. Uh, we see that clearly in the book of Ruth. As long as you're willing to leave behind the other things that you followed in the way that Ruth left behind the foreign gods and chose to follow the God of Israel, you can do that too. You can make that choice to follow God and to accept Christ as your Savior and Lord. And then the cool thing is, is that Ruth and Boaz live that out. The care, they put the same care that God has shown them into caring for other people. And that's part of the legacy that we're a part of. Now that we have the example of Christ, we have to follow that too. It's even like, if all of the actions of Ruth, of, that took place in the story of Ruth, were pointing forward towards Christ, they were pointing towards the ultimate fulfillment of Christ's sacrificial love that had yet to happen, 
Now on the other side of it, we get to use all of our actions and love to point back to Christ, right? We are made in the image of God. We're Christ's ambassadors. We are meant to live out that legacy in a way that points back to him and to what he has done. We've been called similarly to love sacrificially and to love all people regardless of any status or not status that they don't have. And this is something we were talking about at our community group last week. Joel made a plug for community groups earlier, but something we do every week, uh, we meet in groups around the Twin Cities. Um, part of that time is to dig into the, the stuff that we talk about on Sunday, right? We reread the passage and we ask questions about what does this actually mean and how can we live that out? And last week as we talked, uh, it just kind of came up that sometimes it's hard to know where to start with this, right? Like I want to love sacrificially, uh, but like where, where do I start? What do I do? How do I practically go about doing that? Uh, and someone in our group specifically just brought up the point of like, you know, with where I'm at in life, I tend to spend most of my time around people who are like me, right? And a lot of times people who don't feel like they really need that much help uh, and who it's hard to sacrificially love. And those people need help too, so I'm not saying that, right? They need uh, Jesus and they need uh, sacrificial service and love just as much as anybody else does. But I started to think more about that, and I this week was reading an article about a, a guy, his name's Chris Arnaud, I think that's how you pronounce it. He's a writer and a photographer, and he used to be a Wall Street banker, like lived in New York, lived the high life, had all the things you could ever want. And he kind of became dissatisfied with that, and he noticed that there were other areas of the city that just were completely different from what he experienced on a daily basis. So he quit his job and spent three years going to all the places in the U.S. that, uh, he, as he says, you're told not to go. All the cities that people are like, ooh, watch out for that neighborhood or, you know, be really careful if you're going there. And he recently published a book kind of with some of his photos and, and his reflections on it uh, called Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. So he went and documented and talked to people who were facing inequality, addiction, poverty, all sorts of different things. And his basic like thesis, at least from this article I read, is that like there are two, America tends to get divided into like back row and front row, that's how he describes it. And that these two groups of people don't tend to interact or to mix very often, which is kind of what we were talking about in our community group. And so this really piqued my attention. And he had made the point, basically, he was kind of asking, like, are you willing to go into places that are different from you and go and interact with people who might have different life experiences? Uh, and his, like, test for this, he calls it the McDonald's test. Um, and so <laughs> this, his test was, he was like, as a Wall Street banker, when I was living that life, McDonald's was a place I would have felt ashamed to go to, right? He's like, it would have felt like beneath me to go there. But as he did his work and he traveled around the country, he realized that a lot of times that these McDonald's in the cities were like community centers. They were places where people could get electricity. They could use a bathroom with running water. They could get cheap food. Uh, and while he acknowledges that, yes, there are difficulties with big corporations like McDonald's or Walmart or other places like that, and that sometimes you might not agree with all of the things that those companies do, uh, kind of just ask the question, are you willing to go there? Are you, or do you feel like you're so much above that that it's, be, it's uh, beneath you to go there? Thinking that in Minnesota, the better comparison might be the Target-Walmart situation because everybody loves Target, right? I love Target. I'm totally on this train. Uh, 
but like the Walmart is like a shame, right? Like, oh, who goes to Walmart? That's terrible. But it's like, okay, well, there are people there who are there for a reason, and maybe it's in a different community from where you are. Are you willing to go there? Or do you see yourself as so different, so other, that you're not willing to interact with people uh, and to rub shoulders with people who have different experiences? And I think that's really the way that we're going to practice this self-sacrificial love to all people, is by going out into places that we're not always used to going into. So in our group, we kind of brainstormed some ways to do that, and some of the things we came up with were you like shopping at places you don't normally shop, right? The McDonald's, the Walmart, that kind of a thing. Um, Someone suggested playing basketball at a local park, right? Just hang out there. Hang out in communal spaces that, you know, you could drive maybe, depending on where you live, you could drive to a nicer park or a better whatever, or you could hang out in your neighborhood and actually get to know the people who are there. Or you can volunteer, right? Uh, we, last year during the school year, had several of us volunteered here at Hamlin Elementary with an uh, organization called Reading Partners, where you get to read with the same kid every week, and you really get to build that relationship. I, I had a ton of fun. I'm excited to, to see the kid that I was working with again once the school year starts. So with all of that, the other caveat I want to add is just that let's do it faithfully, right? Again, we're people who like to, like, we want to go out and do something and see immediate results. And with this kind of thing, it's just not going to happen. You have to live faithfully. You have to choose, you know, maybe I'm going to go to that local coffee shop every day or once a week for a long period of time before you're actually going to build relationships with people who are there. Things take time. If we want to see this happen, we need to be okay with taking it slow, not seeing immediate results, but trusting that God is faithful through it all and that he's called us to live out this legacy uh, of sacrificial love in the, that we've seen most fully in the example of Christ. So as we move to a time of communion, I want us to reflect on a couple of things. As, you know, this is our, our last time with the book of Ruth. Uh, so I want us to reflect on God's faithfulness, right? Just think about how he worked through that story and through the whole story of scripture through time. Think about how he might be working in your life, even if you can't see it. Or maybe how you might be able to encourage someone else who is struggling with the idea of God being faithful. And then as we also come forward, we get to proclaim our trust in, in that faith, right? In the faithfulness of Christ and our desire to live out the legacy of Christ. By coming forward and taking uh, the bread and the juice, we're saying, I accept Jesus' sacrifice, that self-sacrificial love that he showed me, and I want to live that out. I want that to be so a part of me. I want to proclaim to the rest of the people sitting here today and to anybody else that this is the God I follow. This is the type of legacy that I want to be a part of. So we just ask that if you're going to take communion, that you would be a follower of Christ, that you would accept him as your Lord and Savior. And then if you are, you can come on forward um, and take a piece of bread and a, a cup and then head back to your seat as we worship. So we're going to transition into time of worshiping through song and taking communion. Another way to respond is also giving. We have a box in the back, uh, or you can give online as well. So please pray with me as we transition into this time. Father, we praise you for your faithfulness that you are committed to your promises to us, uh, and we never have to question that. We never have to wonder if you are committed to the promises and that you're going to keep them. But even when we do, even when we run after other things, you're still faithful to us. You love us no matter what, and you've demonstrated that most clearly to us on the cross, where you made it possible for us to be a part of the family of God, not on the basis of anything we've done or that we haven't done, the color of our skin or the balance in our bank account. You've sacrificed yourself for us, and the ultimate example of love. 
And now we get to live that out. We get to be a part of that legacy. So we praise you for what you've done. Uh, and we ask you to give us a desire to live similarly and to serve and love the people in our community. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Julie.